And let me begin reading in Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, we now come to you and we ask for you to give us wisdom as we come to your word. We believe that your word is literally the words of life. And now we come to the Psalms in our summer study. We look at the words that Israel has passed down to us of their songs and poems, their prayers. We ask that you would give us wisdom and insight as we study your word together. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to begin this morning with a question that I'm pretty sure I know the answer to, but I want to ask you nonetheless. How many of you want to be happy? Josh is the only one proud enough to say it. It's, <laughs> Josh, you're, you're a secure man. Uh, and, I don't mean, and, I, and I don't mean this in like a trite way. I mean, how many of you want not to just be kind of happy, surface-level but I mean truly, genuinely, life-changingly happy. To be so deeply satisfied that everything changes. If that's something you desire, and I think it is, I think Josh speaks for more than some of us. He got his hand up there. So here's the good news today that I believe our study in the Psalms, I believe our study in God's Word will show you the true path to happiness. I think in our world today, the vast majority of offers that offer to change your life, offer something uh, that, is, that is so good that you just know, I know it's not that true. I know it's not true. I know nothing can truly offer what you say. But I stand in front of you this morning to tell you honestly that what we will study today is life-changing. And it will show you and point you the way to true happiness. And that way is actually closer than you might think. No, it's not in doing more. It's not in having a positive attitude. It's not in trying harder. And it's not inside of you which is something our world will constantly tell you. Happiness is just inside of you. No, the f way to finding true happiness is putting God and His Word at the center of your life and the center of every decision that you make. And we'll study that this morning. As we come to Psalm 
verse 1, it really is, it's, it's like a door into the rest of the Psalms. Last week we did an overview of the Psalms. Psalm 1 is literally the introduction to 150 different songs, poems, uh, prayers, that lead us in to understand what a God-centered life looks like. And if, if Psalms is that introduction, view Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is almost like this large door we are entering. And over that door, basically it says, all who enter here will be blessed now and forevermore. When we come to Psalm 1, that is literally what we're being invited. Is that we're being invited to understand all that's going to take place from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150. In this context of what does it look like to know and to worship the one true God. And so I want to study the word together. And if I were to give Psalm 1 a title, it would be two ways to live. This is what Psalm 1 uh, introduces to us. It's going to introduce us to two ways to live, two outcomes to your life, Outcome now and in the present, and outcome for eternity. So Psalms, and specifically Psalm 1, the introduction to all of the Psalms is going to show you two ways to live. Two outcomes for the present, two outcomes for all of eternity. Now, let me just transition one moment, because I told you that when we study the Psalms, that I wanted to kind of give you an uh, and an understanding of how the Psalms fit together. So last week we looked the fact, at the fact that the Psalms are really in five books. If you did not know that before, the Psalms come in five different books to us. And we are in book one. And book one consists of Psalms 1 through 41. The first 41 Psalms are book one. The primary author for this first book it is not all by David, but it is primarily by David. And, and if you don't know, the Psalms actually mirror the journey of Israel with their God. Uh, book 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 literally are going to follow the history of Israel. Specifically, that's why book 1, where we pick up, is going to have primarily the writings of David, the king of Israel, and looking at their journey with God. Now, as we begin, I want us to recall together because when we look at book one, we're, we're reading about David, a, a person who lived in real time and who wrote and whose private uh, songs and prayers that we now have as a book of worship. And I want to remind you, so in Joshua 1.8, this is probably a, a verse that you're very familiar with. Remember when God calls Israel to be his people and he's going to show them uh, first of all, through the choosing of Moses, but then also as he raises up Joshua, how important it is that God's leader of his people is a man of God's word. Remember Joshua 1.8. It says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you might be careful to do according to all that is written. For when you do, or when you make uh, then you will make your way prosperous and you will have success. This is the promise to Joshua. In Deuteronomy 17, as you've been going through the Old Testament, at some point in time in your life, you've certainly come across this passage. Deuteronomy lays out what were the requirements for the king of Israel. 
In Deuteronomy, they do not yet have a king. God is the one who is leading his people. But God looks down kind of the, the passageway of time and, and lets his people know, one day you'll have a king. And this is the, what I require of him. Beginning in verse 18, it says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law. I don't know if you've ever processed that, but the king of Israel was literally to have his own handwritten copy of God's law that he transcribed himself to remind him of God's commands and his promises. And it says in verse 19, And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart might not be lifted up above his brothers, that he might not turn aside from the commandments, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The reason I read that to you is because if you don't understand that literally God's first calling to David was to take his law and write his own handwritten copy of God's law so that when he would lead God's people, that it would be God's ways and God's laws, that he would be meditating on God's word. And when we come to the Psalms, if you don't understand that literally David was a man who was steeped in the law, that he was steeped in the Torah, he was steeped in God's commands, then you won't fully grasp the beauty of, of what David is writing because everything that he writes is flowing directly out of his direct and daily time spent in God's Word. And we're going to see that reflected already in book one. Now, I usually give you guys an outline, and I've told you a little bit about the title, but Psalm 1 is six verses. Verses 1 to 2, I told you there's two ways to live. We're going to be introduced to the wicked and the godly. Two ways to live, the wicked and the godly. Verses 3 and 4, we're going to be introduced to two outcomes of the wicked and the godly's lives. The present choices now, we're going to see kind of a, a visual illustration, a, a metaphor. In verses 5 and 6, we're going to see the outcome of their lives and choices for eternity. So with that being our little outline, let's get started today. And let me read for you again, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the first thing that we're introduced in verses 1 and 2 is to this blessed man, this blessed person. And the question I began with, I asked you who truly wants to be happy. If there is a literal translation of this word, it would be happy is the man or truly, uh, truly happy, truly blessed is the man. And then it's going to define. This word blessed, by the way, just if you're interested, the, the New Testament uh, parallel to this is Jesus and his Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. It's the same word. And they, the, both of the passages, so if you're not familiar with the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are uh, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. You know, Blessed are, are those who mourn. The same word used here is the same idea that Jesus picks up. 
And it's the idea of who is truly blessed. Who is the one who is truly happy. And in both cases, David here in the Psalms, in fact, we, uh, Psalm 1 isn't given an author. We don't know. We often, when we don't know the author, talk about uh, David in general. But we don't know the, the author for Psalm 1. If, if you'll read through the 150 Psalms, you'll see that some are specifically attributed to David. And uh, we talked about some are attributed to the sons of Korah, some to uh, Ethan, some to Moses, some to Solomon. We don't know the author here, but it seems to be parallel with Jesus and Matthew chapter 5 of who is truly blessed. Now, the truly blessed person, it says, it's going to give us three specific uh, things this truly happy person or the truly blessed person does not do. I want to take a look at them because we're going to be introduced to, to three actions or three types of people that the blessed person does not associate with. So if you follow along, it says, blessed is the man, so truly happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Secondly, nor stand in the way of sinners. Thirdly, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So let's break that down. What does it mean to walk in the counsel of the wicked? When we talk about counsel, we're talking about uh, the way of thinking that shapes you, right? When we think of counsel, we often use the word advice. And so the first thing that we notice about this truly blessed man is that he, he is not influenced and shaped by the wisdom of the world around him, specifically the wicked. When we say the wicked, uh, we tend to have this idea of, well, there's wicked, like truly terrible people, there's the good, and then there's kind of the neutral. When we come to Psalms, there's only two types of people. It's the same thing in Proverbs. In Proverbs, it's the wise and the fool. And when we come to the Psalms, it's the righteous or the unrighteous. The righteous are the ones who are in right relationship with God, and the unrighteous are all those who are not. So wicked doesn't mean, uh, when we think of the, uh, the, the, the murderers, the despots, the, the world's worst people, it's talking about everybody in the world who is not in right relationship with God. Just That's important clarification so that we don't automatically think the wicked, you're talking about somebody else than the average person. No, we're talking about the average person. So, the counsel is not coming from the wisdom of the wicked. The wicked are those, like I said, who are outside of relationship with God, who would reject God, or we might simply say the surrounding culture. The way this world acts and thinks. The values of this world. And so, at the center of those who walk in the counsel of the wicked is the fact that they are influenced and shaped by those around them. The second thing we see is the truly blessed man doesn't stand in the way of sinners. What does it mean to stand in the way of sinners? To follow in the way or the same path as sinners is do the same things they do. So the first thing was that they're being shaped, their thinking is being shaped by the wicked or the, the culture around them. The second thing they do is that they stand in the way of sinners, that they're on the path with those who are living a certain way. And so to stand in the way of sinners is that your actions mirror those around you. The third thing that we see is that they don't sit in the seat of scoffers. If English is not your first language, what does it mean to uh, be a scoffer? Well, 
the picture of a, a scoffer is, is somebody who uh, has an arrogant or mocking attitude t- towards somebody else. Somebody who, who looks down at others. Uh, specifically somebody, uh, and, and, and it, in a sense, judging their way of thinking, judging their way of living, and it's below theirs. So they, they sit in a position that they believe is, is higher, more advanced, more knowing, more informed, more enlightened. And what we see is that to sit in the seat of scoffers is the person who has an elevated view of themselves and their knowledge and they show contempt or superiority to others. And basically, if you've talked about their heart attitude, their heart attitude towards God and His truth is one of arrogance and pride where they do not accept God and His truth and instead, they place themselves as the one who decides on what is true. What is true for me? What is true for this culture? This is the scoffer. The scoffer will look and say, I refuse to believe that I'm created. I refuse to believe that there's a God exists. I refuse to believe that he has sovereignty over me. I'm the captain of my ship. I am the the one who oversees my soul and I control my own destiny. This is the one who sits in the seat of scoffers. It's basically a worldview without God and people at the center and to view those who do not think like you as beneath you. All right, so you see three things. So the truly blessed person, the truly happy person, first avoids three types of people and three types of actions. The counsel of the wicked, walking in the path of the sinners, and sitting in the seat of scoffers. Everybody clear? Everybody see those three things? And then we move to a but, or a contrast. Verse 2 begins, but. So it directly connects. So the blessed man doesn't do these three things, but... It says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So real simply, notice that it says delight, not duty. When we talk about delight, we mean joy, passion, uh, something that that is life-giving. And one of the first and uh, most fundamental things we need to understand about God's word is that it is delight. To, To know God is to be given life and joy. Uh, it is not endless rule-keeping. It's not religion. And if you want to think about like, what does it mean to delight, uh, I once heard an interview question that I thought was uh, amazing. And they, they asked this to try to figure out what truly motivates people. And they just said, when you're not at work, what's the thing that you think most about? If you just kind of use that little test, you know, think, so when you're not at work, when your brain is, is not being used, specifically for your vocation, when you have time to yourself, maybe that's an even a better way to put it, when you have time to yourself uh, and you're not specifically either uh, taking care of family or children or work, what do you think about? What do you do? What gives you passion? This is really what, what when we think about like, what, what do you do when you have the choice to do something only for yourself? When you have free time? when you just want to enjoy, when you want uh, downtime. When you think about that, that's really what gives you joy. That's uh, oftentimes what is your passion, the thing that you would do that, that you would do just because you have time. And that's what the Psalms are pointing out, is that the truly blessed person delights in God's Word. That might be foreign to us, because for many of us, we might think of del- uh, 
When we talk about reading God's word, or we talk about prayer, or we talk about our, our life with Christ, that we often really don't have a box for what that looks like, because to us, it's more duty. And so the first and foremost thing that we need to establish is, this blessed man, that his delight is truly in the law of God. That nothing gives him greater happiness than God's word. And specifically, it says the law of the Lord. By the way, the law here simply means, uh, it could be specifically the law of Moses that was given in Deuteronomy. It could refer to what we would call the Pentateuch or the first five books. But and oftentimes, the Psalms use this word's law to talk about anything that God has revealed about himself. The true things that God has revealed to his people. So, the first thing that we see is we have a comparison. The truly blessed man avoids these three things but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And if I were to give you just the contrast or the difference, the life of the wicked or the sinner or the scoffer is built on following the crowd and the culture. At the center of their lives is the wisdom of this age. Their ways of thinking and doing, their values, is reflected and influenced by the culture around them. The contrast, the life of the godly is marked by God's word at being at the center of their lives. God's word is the center of how they think and what they do. Let me move on to the second uh, two verses, verses 3 and 4. Because Psalm 1 now moves to two present outcomes. This is going to give us two images to help us understand the difference between the truly blessed and those who the scriptures say are the sinners, the scoffers, the wicked. Verse 3, it says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives. Now, you've got to understand this picture. If you know Israel, then we're not talking about a tropical rainforest. Israel is in a, a, a dry and arid place. And so this picture of a stream by a river is something that is, is striking. We know that uh, for, for the most part, Israel is, is uh, land that is arid. And this picture that this psalmist is going to uh, give to us to help us reflect on what it looks like to delight in the law of the Lord is a, is a tree planted by a stream yielding fruit whose leaves do not wither. Planted by a stream. Let's just reflect on this. A tree is a living organism, but it doesn't actually have life in itself. It needs sun and it needs water to be able to sustain life, right? A tree, a tree can't live indefinitely. So the picture that we have here, and I think it's beautiful because we're told in verse, verses 1 and 2 that the, the blessed man is the one who delights on the law of the Lord. So we have this picture of a tree, and that tree is putting down roots into the stream. So just so you know, a tree, just because it's by the river, the river doesn't water the tree. It, it isn't up there pouring buckets of water. The, the tree will actually go roots down into the stream. And so the picture we have is a tree, that will put its roots down into the stream so that it could take up water and live. And that stream is going to provide a steady supply so that that tree never lacks. It never lacks nourishment. 
And so we have this tree planted by the streams of water. It's putting roots down the water. And it's finding a constant supply. Now, it yields its fruit in season. The picture we have here is just not constant fruit bearing, but it says it yields its fruit in season. So the natural cycles of life. We know that uh, in life, not every season is harvest, but there, there are seasons. And so the, this picture is, is not this perfect picture where the tree planted by the water just only bears fruit. But what it's saying is, in the natural course of life, this tree that is planted by the stream, who has put down roots to constantly uh, take up the life-giving water that it has been uh, planted by, that during the natural seasons, because of the fact that it has constant access to that life-giving water, it will bear fruit. And then it says that its leaf does not wither. Now, I don't know if you have studied uh, horticulture, agriculture very much, but if you haven't, if you have noticed during drought that the leaves on a tree will wither, there's a very specific reason for that. Is that uh, trees that do not have access to a constant flow of water, when they experience drought, to preserve the life of the tree, they will draw in every resource and all the water from its leaves into the heart of the tree so that it can survive a drought. So when we experience drought, one of the things you recognize is that leaves that may have been green and verdant will begin to wither or, or brown around the edges, or that leaves can even fall off early. Uh, we experienced a drought, uh, I think maybe two years ago, and I remember even in the middle of the summer, all the, tree, the leaves had almost turned brown. It almost looked like fall. And so what this illustration is showing us is that even in seasons of drought, the one who is planted by water, their leaves will not wither. The importance of this is that the reality is all of us experience those seasons of drought. It comes. The promise that we have here is that even in the midst of those droughts, even in the times where left to ourselves, we have no resources in ourselves, that the tree planted by the water, their leaves will not wither. And so this happens to us. And the beautiful promise is, is that in the midst of adversity, oftentimes when we become a shell of ourselves, where we pull, have you ever had this? Have you ever been in crisis? And, and, the, and you're like, I don't even want to respond to messages. You're like, hey man, what's, I haven't heard from you for like a week. Have you been there where like you just kind of put all of life on pause because you don't have the bandwidth to deal with the crisis and life and keeping up with, with the rest of your friends? That's the picture of the leaves that are beginning to wither. That's the picture of, of doing life where uh, if, if it's not raining, then we aren't healthy. The tree planted by the stream doesn't need constant showers. It is drawing up life-giving water from its roots and its leaves never wither. You have to be really... Uh, we, we have to grasp the beauty of this illustration because it's not just a random illustration from the psalmist. They've thought through this. They've, they are trying to paint us a picture so we understand. It's not just any tree. It's a tree planted by the water whose roots grow down deep. Not only does it bear fruit in season, but when there is drought, its leaves do not wither. 
It still has life in itself. It doesn't have to draw in. It doesn't have to turn off life. It doesn't have to say, I'm in crisis mode right now, and basically I'm a shell of myself. I'm not who, uh, I, I have no patience. I am not kind. I every day complain. I am bitter. I'm overwhelmed. And everybody else knows it. Have you been there? Well, the tree planted by the water, because of the way that it's constantly able to drink, does not have to have that experience. That we can have a different experience. Because every other tree planted everywhere else will experience drought, and its leaves will wither, and it will not bear fruit. But the tree planted by the stream, it will bear fruit, and its leaves won't wither. That's a beautiful illustration that this psalmist has given to us. What does the life look like of the truly happy person? It's a tree planted by the water, bearing fruit in season, whose leaves do not wither. And that part, that last part is especially, especially hopeful because we will go through the drought. There will be days where it's, it's sunny and the rain comes and life is good, right? You don't even have to work. The rain just falls. But the drought comes too. And what happens in the drought? Well, for the wicked, it says, the wicked are not so. Here's the comparison. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff the wind drives away. What is chaff? Once again, agricultural uh, analogy. Chaff is, is if you have wheat, if you've seen the fields, you know that when they harvest the fields, the little wheat that we will use, the little seeds, they have to be beaten out of that stalk. And so you, you, you cut the wheat, and then you, you have to thresh the wheat. Basically, you have to beat those heads against something or beat on those heads. And when you beat the head to get out those kernels that we will use for bread uh, or that we will use for cooking, that have nutrients, that have sustenance, that we can actually use to eat, what happens is when it's separated, that little husk, that little covering around the wheat is called chaff. And if you have ever been on a farm, or and, and if, if you were in Israel, as you walked along the roads, you would have seen people harvesting, and they're beating their wheat, or they're beating the barley, or they're beating their, their grain. And when that happens is, literally, the wind would take away the chaff. It would blow. And that chaff would just be blown about by the wind, wherever the wind takes it. And so the psalmist says, you want to understand the difference between the truly blessed person and those who uh, are wicked or the sinners or scoffers, basically those who reject God. Here's the illustration. One is a tree planted by the stream whose roots go deep, who's bearing fruit, and even in the middle of drought, their leaves don't wither. And the second is chaff. It is dry. It is weightless. It has no nutritional value. And it has no root. It is simply blown about by the wind. And so you can see the, the visual image that the psalmist is trying to paint for us. And the key difference is one is rooted. One is grounded. One is, is alive and bearing fruit. And the other is weightless, valueless chaff blown about to wherever the wind is driving. Now, if you want to connect those two, that first person who's, who listens to the counsel of the wicked, who stands in the way of sinners, and who sits in the seat of scoffers, all they are is blown about by the whims of culture which change all the time. 
countries will change their rules. People will change. They, uh, they'll change their profile picture. They'll change everything. People reinvent themselves on a constant basis on Facebook, on, uh, that, that, I guess that's even old, on Instagram, on TikTok, right? Uh, you know better than I do. We are constantly changing and, and kind of portraying who we are, reinventing who we are. Countries do it. People do it. But the illustration here is that type of person, they're like chaff. They're dry. They're weightless. They have nothing in themselves. They're completely at the whims of the wind. Blown about wherever our culture, wherever our people say, believe this, do this. And so we see the second difference. What is the outcome of the man who delights in God's word versus those who are wicked and sinners and scoffers? It is the difference between rooted and grounded and weightless and blown about. That is the present. Let's finish by looking at two outcomes for the final reward. Verses 5 and 6. Now, don't look just at the here and now, the present. It looks towards the future, towards eternity. And it says, therefore, therefore is a summary word, so we know that this, the author is summarizing his conclusion. He says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So real quickly, like I said, therefore, it means that he is drawing his final conclusion. He is drawing his, his uh, conclusion about these two ways to live, the one who delights in God's word, and the one who rejects God's word. And he says, one, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. The Bible is very clear, and we see from this psalm that there is a day of judgment coming, that God will judge the works of man. And there's this firm belief uh, in, in all of us that things that have been done that are wrong will one day be righted. When does that happen? What happens at the judgment seat of God? That God will, has appointed a day where he will judge all things and all actions. And the Bible even says every word that we have uttered. And so the sinner, the wicked, won't stand in the judgment. Secondly, the sinners in the, won't stand in the congregation of the righteous. The beauty of eternity means that God will be with his people, but those who have rejected God won't be in that community. That they won't be allowed to be in, in this blessed community of those who have fellowship with God. And so where there's a promise here that they won't be in the congregation of the righteous, and the third thing is actually in verse 6, it says, the wicked will perish. So we could know with conviction that God knows the ways of the wicked, and most assuredly that God has promised that all who deny him in this life will receive justice for their rebellion, and they will receive justice for the way they have lived their life. Now, let's look at the person who is righteous. and says, verse 6, it says, God knows the way of the righteous. What does that mean, that God actually knows? Uh, how does that fit into this passage? When the scriptures say knows, it means more than knowledge. So, I mean, in a general way, I mean, God knows the way of the wicked too, doesn't he? So, what's the difference? I mean, God, if God knows everything, God knows all of our deeds, then why does the scripture specifically say God knows the way of the righteous? Well, a good illustration... Of this, what does it mean that God knows? It means that God 
cares for or watches over the righteous. For example, Psalm 23, a psalm of David, is a great example of David's understanding that God is literally with him step by step through all of life. What does it mean that God knows the way of the righteous? Well, read Psalm 23 with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Psalm 23 lays out this rock-solid conviction that the shepherd, the great shepherd of my soul, is with me every single day of my life, and he will lead me safely home. This is what it means that the Lord knows his way. That God will be with his people. He will feed his sheep. He will protect them in a way that he does not do for the wicked. To know that God sees me and watches over me is to have this confidence that no matter what, because you notice Psalm 23 even took us in the valley of the shadow of death. right? So it's not, hey, I'm... For God to know me, I am just, basically, I'm jumping from mountaintop to mountaintop. God is, is bringing me to all the heights. No, it says that in all of life, David has this rock-solid confidence that the Lord is his shepherd literally through every circumstance in life, and God goes with him. So what does it mean that God knows the way of the righteous? It's that God watches over us. He cares for and provides us. He sees us to our eternal dwelling place. He oversees that we arrive safely. It doesn't mean that we're without trials. It doesn't mean seasons don't have drought. It does not mean that there's moments where our enemies persecute or threaten. But it means that no one could prevent God from bringing us safely into his kingdom. This is the eternal view that David has recognizing that those who delight in God, those who make God their God, and that they are His people, have this confidence that God knows my way, my foot will never slip. I love uh, how there's uh, we're told that the God of Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. I fall asleep and my energy wanes and I reach my limit. God, He never sleeps, He never slumbers, He is always there to keep my foot on the rock. I will not fall. And so we see this difference. Eternity apart from God and apart from his community is the final resting place of the wicked. But for those who are righteous, it says we have the confidence that God will safely bring us to his rest. Now, I want to bring this to a close and I want to give you, have you ever had a product where there's like a huge warning sign on it? Uh, I need to give you a huge warning sign, a danger sign about a way to misunderstand this sermon and misapply this sermon. This sermon is not about you trying to be righteous, and if we are righteous, if we do all these good things, then God will be pleased. The whole reason that we have the Psalms is because God decided that his people 
who were living in slavery in Egypt, came to them, rescued them, redeemed them, bought them for himself, brought them out, gave him his law, and invited his people to know him and to respond to him. God is a God of relationship. God is a God of covenant. God makes a covenant with his people in the Old Testament, and he brings them into a covenant with himself, and then he invites them to know who he is, and he invites them to how to live in a way that is blessed. As you hear this sermon, don't hear that the entire point of this message was that you should try to pursue godliness as if that is the main point of the sermon. The main point of the sermon was glorifying in the kind of blessing that comes from knowing the God who made us and created us and designed us to delight in Him. And so if I want to bring this sermon to an end, the way that the New Testament gives us an understanding of, of what took place in the same way that God rescued Israel, Jesus has rescued us. In the same way that God came in and broke the chains of slavery to Egypt, God has come in and through Jesus Christ has broken the chains of our sins and set us free to know Him and to worship Him. All of the life of pursuing righteousness is simply a loving response to recognize God has loved me. He has invited me to know Him. He has invited me to relationship. And everything I do is out of delight in that. And so I need a huge exclamation point warning sign to think this whole message is about trying to be this righteous person and if I do, I'm blessed. And it's really the opposite. It's inviting us to know this God of Israel who the Psalms are written about that loved His people so much that He redeemed them so that they could have a relationship with Him and then out of that relationship wanting to live in the ways that He says are good. And so this morning, let me invite you not to try to just pursue righteous works. Let me invite you to know the God who is behind the Psalms. Not to pursue trying to be a righteous person, thinking that that somehow makes you good enough for God, but to receive God's gift of knowing Him through Jesus Christ. And out of that relationship, learning to love and to walk in the ways that God says are good. And if we get those two things in the wrong order, then you will either be pursuing religion and doing all the things that you think are good that earn salvation. But on the other hand, God offers relationship to know Him. And out of knowing Him, out of experiencing Him, out of tasting and seeing that God is good, saying, God, you indeed are good. You are indeed truth. And as a result, I want to build my life on what you say is true. Those are two different approaches. This morning, I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about relationship with the God of Israel, who has now made himself the God of all the nations through Jesus Christ. I'm inviting all to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the Psalms. We thank you how the Psalms lead us to worship. This morning, the Psalms begin. It's, a, it's an entrance. It's a door into understanding two types of lives, the lives of the righteous, the lives of the wicked. And God, we know that none of us are truly righteous. 
But we do believe that in Jesus Christ, you have provided a way for all to receive the righteousness that only come from Jesus Christ. We celebrated that in communion. That you, your body was broken, your blood was shed, so that we would be made righteous. We pray now, Father, that everybody who is listening to this sermon would know how to respond. Holy Spirit, would you work? And for anyone who has not yet understood this wonderful gift of knowing God and being in relationship with Him, and as a result, ordering our lives in a way that God says is good, we pray that you would be working, Holy Spirit, to bring about a true knowledge, a life-changing knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray this. Amen. Yeah.